Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Lennar is surging today on the prospects of continuing to build homes and continuing to have people buy them, even as they become less affordable. Joining us now is Gary Schilling. He is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. We're always happy to have him on. He's president of A. Gary Schilling & Co. Uh, Gary, you wrote a column saying U.S. housing will get even less affordable. Why? Well, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is that the construction costs have gone up. Labor costs have gone up. A lot of the carpenters, masons, uh, plumbers, and so on that came from Mexico and elsewhere in Central America uh, in the housing boom, they've gone home. And with immigration policy, it's harder for those people to, to come back. And also, economic conditions are better in Mexico, so they're happier to stay there. You've also had increases in lumber costs. There's a 20% uh, tariff on imported Canadian lumber, and there have been forest fires and insect dam damage in the Pacific Northwest, which you've added, which you've added to costs. Uh, so, and and you you also you also in in terms of of the cost, you you simply have uh, a lot of builders who are in effect concentrating on the higher cost houses because. Those are people who can't afford them. Uh, uh, lower, lower income people. A lot of times they don't have the credit scores and so on. So builders are saying, "I'll concentrate on the area where people are less price sensitive." So you you really do have, uh, in effect, a shift toward higher higher cost housing, and uh, it's it's a number of factors. Uh, Gary Schilling, uh, maybe explain why is it that uh, a, a segment of the economy, residential construction, which accounts for just 4% of GDP, why is this uh, such an important area? It has a bigger effect. Well, it's bigger, it's bigger, Pim, because it is so volatile, and this last recession uh, really proved it. Now, this was this was really driven by the collapse in the subprime mortgage sector, and it took the economy with it. But you had there uh, a decline. Housing at its peak was 6.7% of GDP in late 2005. Then it went to 2.5%, 2.5% of GDP in early 2011. Well, that collapse of 4.2 percentage points of GDP in itself, that is a major recession. As a matter of fact, the whole economy declined a tenth less, 4.1 percent. In other words, housing collapse accounted for more than the decline in the economy in that recession. That was the worst since the 1930s. So it's, it's a volatility. And a lot of it has to do with the, the fact that housing is driven by by interest rates, it's highly leveraged. You think about it, if you had a company that was leveraged where you can get an FHA loan 3.5% down, or if you had a company that was, that, that had the, only that amount of capital and the rest was filed, you'd say, boy, they're way over leveraged, but that's right. the way housing is. So it's very sensitive interest rates. And then, of course, you also had that bonanza of people rushing into subprime mortgages who really couldn't afford them. So it was 
augmented the whole the whole yeah. cycle on the downside. Well, Gary, I'm just trying to understand uh, what the path forward is because a lot of people are lamenting the lack of affordable uh, inventory here. Uh, you're you're predicting that there isn't going to be much more of it because builders aren't really being incentivized to build it, and and just the materials and and the labor is more expensive. So going forward, uh, this this would seem to be. Support supportive of prices, right? Um, but uh, in the wrong places. <laughs> in other words, that it's going to be perhaps cheaper to buy uh, homes on the high end, but it's going to get uh, more and more difficult to buy more affordable homes. Yeah, and, and you see that in the in the inventories. Uh, uh, there is a lot more inventory, you know, month supply, uh, that the, the inventory relative to the sales in, in the latest month. That is much higher in new houses than it is for existing houses, and existing houses tend to be cheaper. So, in effect, you just don't have the existing houses, and you haven't had a turnover. Post-war babies are staying in their houses. They're working longer. A lot of them need to. They don't have the income to, to retire. Uh, you had a huge sopping up of of used houses, existing houses bought out of foreclosure uh, by institutional investors, and they and they tend to hang on to them. They turn don't turn them over as fast as normal homeowners, and that's a that's a key reason. Both these are key reasons that the that the length of time that people are staying in the house now is ten years. It used to be six years. So you just don't have the turnover. You don't have the available supply, particularly of existing houses. Gary, we've been talking about supply. We spoke about the effect of the housing industry on the overall economy. Give you about a minute or so. Tell us about the demand side right now. Well, the demand side is is being is being hurt by a number of factors. One is affordability, uh, particularly for younger people. They simply do not have the the, the money, the assets. I mean, you know, the average the average person uh, under under thirty five has got savings of five thousand dollars. Well, that doesn't go very far in terms of buying a house. Uh, Student loans are a big depressing factor for many of these people. Credit scores, they've tightened up since the Great Recession and housing collapse, and they can't meet the, the credit scores. Uh, so you have a number of factors here that really make it much more difficult for uh, people to uh, to afford houses. And you can say this is an imbalance and it shouldn't exist forever, but what it really means is a lot more people are being forced to, to rent. Now, new home uh, first-time buyers are increasing, uh, no question about it, and the, the gap between mortgages and uh, uh, between uh, mortgages and rents is closing in favor of owning, owning a house, but it's got a long way to go. Thank you very much. Gary Schilling, he is the president of A. Gary Schilling and Company. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He also is a wonderful honey producer. He has his own bees. Yes, he does. They're very good. Yes. Yeah. Apiary, I think is the term. Well done. Thanks very much. Gary Schilling, A. Gary Schilling and Company. All right, time to talk about commodities with Mike McClone, our commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our 1130 studio. And Alan Bjurga, agriculture reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us from our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, D.C. And of course, you can follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Bjurga. That's B J E R G A. Uh, Mike, I want to begin with you because let's get the price action, first of all, and a little bit of the pain. Let's start with soybeans. What has been going on? If you're a soybean farmer, you're not happy. 
You're not happy with prices. You're happy with production. That's the number one problem. The good to excellent conditions for this month are the best they've been in decades. In fact, you know, basically right at the 2011 peak. And I was there in the Midwest last weekend, and I've just never seen the crop look this good, notably in corn. But soybeans are the main export we have to China. So good conditions, um, export uh, trade tensions, and then, of course, the, the plunge in the Brazilian real has been a, basically a perfect storm for soybeans. So looking forward, the question is, is this perfect storm sustainable? And from these levels, it's unlikely. So, Alan, come on in here. I mean, what could potentially alter this backdrop, which is a perfect storm, uh, to send uh, corn and soybean prices plummeting and uh, and leave and leave a lot of crops out there uh without a lot of profit margin? Well, there's two things you could do. I mean, one is sort of the perennial, which is weather. Uh, if you have, uh, we're getting to to a sensitive period in terms of the germination of the crops for corn and soybeans. If you have a hot, dry spell in the U.S. Midwest, that would change the crop outlook. Um, of course, you can always hope, if you're a U.S. farmer, for a lack of rain somewhere else. I mean, this is a global market with global supply and demand. So those are a couple things. That's, that's one thing. The, the other thing, of course, is the policy environment. I mean, somebody could blink in the trade war or the trade war could be called off or, or something could be done in that regard. Uh, another factor is the U.S. Department of Agriculture keeps saying that that they're going to have uh, U.S. farmers' backs. Uh, that could be through some stepped-up commodity purchases. In the short term, that could help support prices in the case of a trade war. But you, in the long run, it would just contribute to a supply overhang. So that's got to kind of present a bit of a mixed picture for the market. Alan, a little bit more on these policy wars, perhaps on a product that isn't necessarily as widely traded anymore. And this has to do with cheese and dairy products, particularly on the Canadian border. What have you been hearing? You know, a lot of the attention on dairy and cheese has been with with Canada and and the tariffs that they have on U.S. products and their system of supply management, which is something that's become very controversial in the NAFTA talks. I would actually draw some of your attention to Mexico. I mean, for the very reason that Canada doesn't have a lot of U.S. market share, uh, it's not actually a big supplier, a big issue on the markets. Mexico, on the other hand, is our biggest export destination. And when you start to see some of these duties go into effect uh, with Mexico, exports have really what have been supporting dairy markets. Um, and if you see that cut off from the largest customer, now we see a return to dairy gluts that could be very difficult for producers. Mike, come on in here. I just want to broaden out and take a, take a, take a step back and look at commodities overall. Bloomberg Commodities Index actually has declined for yet a fourth week that is its worst run in more than a year. And this comes right after, months after, uh, behemoths from PIMCO to Goldman Sachs said commodities is the place to go. This is the bullish bet of the year. Uh, it has not been. Is it, it has not been. Is it because of the stronger dollar? Is it because of the trade talk? Is it just a perfect story? in a lot of different areas. I mean, we're talking not just crops. We're talking also zinc. We're talking aluminum. We're talking a whole bunch of things. Yeah, I think you nailed it first with the dollar. The dollar had a pretty weak first first few months of the year. In the last few months, basically since the end of March, the Bloomberg dollar index is up about 5 6%. And guess what? The Bloomberg commodity index is down almost exactly the same amount. So the dollar is a key thing. Also, we've seen a peak in, in energy and crude oil prices. And what's really become more surprising is this this um, plunge in metals. And I think the metals had a very good support level. Obviously, they're the most dollar sensitive. That's a key area. And then ags. Now, ags are really the ones just getting hit by trade tensions the most. So these kind of areas and these levels, the question is is this somewhat perfect storm the last few months for commodities last month really is it sustainable i think it's unlikely unlikely 
What does that mean? So where are people are people actually following that that uh, that strategy? Well, yes, I think overall the commodity market looks like it's still in a pretty a very solid recovery period. Now it had a, it got a little too enthusiastic earlier in the year, and my main risk was that crude oil would peak, and it did. And to me, the main potential upside is, is probably in agriculture and the ags. But, you know, that's a little bit far away from now. But as our pre- previous, as Alan mentioned, you know, the market has still has not even, you know, we haven't started July and August. And that's the key month for ags. But overall, the key thing to remember about commodities, this bull market is only three years old. Look at stock markets about 10 years old. And the key issue is the dollar. If, we, if this dollar rally, which looks like it's unsustainable, if it peaks out soon, the commodity market should come right back. And it probably is going to. So, Alan, uh, come on in here because I know you've you've got a lot of connections to the farming world and you've been uh, tracking it for years. And I would love to get your sense of whether farmers kind of view this the same way as Mike was just portraying it, that this is just a perfect storm uh, largely driven by the dollar rally uh, that will reverse probably in short order. Or are they viewing this as something more substantial that they're that they're more concerned about? Well, it kind of depends on what you mean by this. Uh, if you're you're talking about some of the short-term issues in terms of trade flows with China and wars with exporters. I, I do think the sentiment is is that something that could be a short-term pain. But you know there is a hope for a long-term gain there. You know farm country tends to be very supportive of President Trump, and, and when they're told that he'll have farmers' backs and in the long run this will lead to a better trade environment, a lot of them are willing to believe that message. But in terms of the overall commodities outlook, I don't think we've seen enough um, in terms of adjustment to supply and demand. Man, for farmers to truly be confident that this sort of doldrum period that we've been in for about the past half decade is really going to change. You know, American farmers, in terms of their productivity, can often be their, their greatest enemy. And, and other, you know, world product producers from Brazil and Argentina to the Black Sea region have really upped their gain too. And so, from the ma- macro standpoint of supply and demand in global agriculture, regardless of the headlines of the day, there has been a production and, and and, and demand imbalance that even though this year we're seeing some progress on it for the first time in about five, six years, uh, it's still something that is very concerning in agriculture country. And I think you would need to have two, three years of demand outstripping supply before farmers would feel really confident again. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Uh, I personally have been really interested in the idea uh, that you've seen this sell-off in commodities after so many firms said this was the place to go. Mike McLone, uh, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Alan Birga, Bloomberg Agricultural Reporter. Thank you to both of you. Now we're going to get smarter on General Electric with Karen Eubelhart, our industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Karen, if the GE healthcare business is such a great business, why are they selling the business? I think that they needed to get smaller in a big way, and uh, they can't really do much with um, power. Uh, aviation is their crown jewel. Uh, I think they the numbers worked. It is a different kind of business versus the other you know industrial businesses they're in, and it, they can really pull a lot of cash out of it and solve a lot of their other problems. What's left? 
Uh, well, the aviation business, which is the engine business and the all the after, related aftermarket and digital, et cetera, and that's a very, very good business with margins almost uh, 25%. Uh, so that's a keeper. And power, which is a problem. So they've got a great business and a problem business. But there is upside uh, if they can just shrink power enough. So uh, That's a multi-year thing, though. So what's the narrative that's driving the shares up 7% today? That they took a big move, that they gave us numbers are going to reduce debt by $25 billion. Uh, a bunch of a lot of the pension is going with health care, which was another, you know, um, thing around their neck. And so some of these real uh, financial balance sheet cash flow problems can go away with the magnitude of the money they can draw from these other asset sales, which includes, by the way, Baker Hughes. What happens to the dividend? Well, the dividend will stay intact as long as the entity is intact. But when they split it up, in aggregate, the dividend will probably be lower. The industrial, they'll seek to get a yield in line with the industrial peers, which will be about 2, 2.2, 2.3% yield. And then the healthcare business will have a lower yield. So net, uh, it will be down. However, solving these other problems, I think, matters significantly more to the stock. Let's go to the conspiracy theories, Karen. Right now, I just want to bring up what Dave Wilson noted earlier today. He was saying, it's so interesting that GE was just booted from the Dow Jones Index, and now it announces the spinoff and its shares are surging. Do you think that the removal of the company from the Dow Jones Index actually had anything to do with its decision to, uh, to do these sales now? I think the timing was, I would think there was a little bit of planned timing on that front, actually, because it happened the same day, right? Um, but it, I, I don't think a decision might, would have, the decision would have changed because New GE is going to still be a much smaller, smaller company, right? But uh, I think the timing is interesting. Well, I mean, the, the point being here that there's less pressure on General Electric to be a behemoth and yes. there's less pressure to sort of maintain a certain veneer of anything. They can go try to do whatever makes sense for their business um, without having to worry about getting booted out of the index because they already have been. Yeah, I don't think they'd make big decisions based on that. I think all of this stuff was well underway, but I agree. It lifts something that frankly didn't matter much to the, you know, the prospects for the company, but it was a, a noose that people worried about, oh, they're going to get taken out, they're going to get taken out. Well, that's behind us now. Baker Hughes, what's the future there? Uh, you know, he got a lot of heat because that is um, an asset he could have monetized very easily. Uh, GE could have. And um, he, uh, the Flannery, CEO Flannery said, look, I'm not going to do something quickly just because you want me to do something quickly. I want to get the benefits of an oil recovery. And, and I'm not going to sell it now. So he said he'll sell it over two or three years. He'll probably sell it in pieces. Strategically, they made that made sense. But he had such cash issues that, you know, there was a question of whether he'd be able to do that. And now by uh, monetizing health care, he gets some flexibility to wait for a rebound. What's next for them to sell? You know, I think we're kind of done. I mean, there might be some little bits and pieces in power. Uh, you know, that business, the core of it is the large gas and steam turbines, but there are some other businesses like a small grid business, for example, you know, uh, trans, uh, transmission and distribution business. Um, there's a few other smaller things in power he might want to prune, but the big stuff with these two moves is pretty much done. 
Karen Ubelhart. Thank you. That was really, really uh, illuminating and explains why the shares are up nearly 7%. I'm curious about the whole uh, conversation they must have had about, all right, we're out of the Dow Jones, so you don't think it's anything. He's giving me this look of incredible no, skepticism. I'm just, I'm just, I mean, I, just the like, timing. Oh my God, stop. No, the ti- <laughs> as Karen said, I think the timing is interesting, and that may have had something to do with it. But I can't imagine that the decision to actually right. do it, fair enough, hinged on anything like that. Karen Uvelhart, by the way, is industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We always love getting her insights. It is uh, official. The Department of Labor's fiduciary rule is dead. Let's find out what that means from Elliot Weisbluth. He is the founder and the chief executive of Hightower Advisors. They're based in Chicago and help manage approximately $50 billion of customer assets. And I'm sure by the time we get done with the interview, they will manage even more than $50 billion <laughs> of customer assets. Elliot, thanks very much for coming into the My studio. Uh, maybe just refresh quickly the people, uh, the fiduciary rule, which was proposed by the Department of Labor, had to do with retirement accounts, but that rule is dead. Yeah, exactly. So this was, I think, the, the latest attempt, um, well-intended, and we applauded the effort for the agency to implement uh, a true fiduciary rule. And for, for the folks that are listening that may not be familiar with that term, you know, think, think about the way doctors uh, follow the Hippocratic Oath or the way a lawyer follows a, a duty to put the client interest first. It's a very simple concept. Uh, there's no caveats to it. There's no exceptions to it. Either you put the client interest first or you put your own interest first. It's, it's really that simple. Uh, so when, when you see the regulators producing thousands of pages of reports trying to explain a very simple concept, you know that there's been influences that have come to bear to make it complicated. And as I say to individuals, right, we talk to clients a lot, if you're confused about whether your advisor has a fiduciary duty, or if you're confused that they're putting your interest first or not, they're probably not. And there's a good reason why there's confusion. So last attempt, uh, again, we've been watching this for years. There was Dodd-Frank, there was the DOL, there's the SEC. Uh, it's dead for now vis-a-vis this effort, but it'll come back. The, the, the fiduciary duty discussion's not going away. One thing that is also not going away is conflicts of interest when it comes Absolutely. to wealth management. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, we, we started Hightower in, in 2007, just on the eve of the credit crisis, which was a, a, a massive example of, of conflicts of interest. And unfortunately, in the past 10 years, not a lot has changed in the way certain parts of the industry operate. And to, to keep it uh, very simple, if you can get paid a couple of different ways, and the person to whom you're looking for advice is getting paid one way and 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 the product or the service that you're being sold has also generated profits elsewhere inside that business, you have a conflict of interest. Uh, and that conflict of interest is pernicious inside of, inside of these firms. It results in lots of profit. Give an example yeah. so people understand. This could be things like mutual funds. This could sure. be investment so, vehicles. So for example, if, if a financial advisor at an institution says to you, I'm going to charge you one point 
uh, one basis point, uh, 100 basis points or 1% point on your assets. And I get 50 of those basis points as my compensation. And then we pay 50 basis points to the platform of products. And look at all these products we have and different funds, equity funds and fixed income funds, all sorts of funds. And you pay 50 cents or 50 basis points for that product and 50 basis points for the fee. The client might think, well, that sounds like a reasonable proposition. What the client doesn't know is that the actual money manager who's behind that platform may only get 35 basis points of the 50 basis points that the client is paying the firm. So the, the institution gets a percentage of the 50 basis points paid to the financial advisor, and then hidden is a second layer of fees, 15 basis points, that is the cost between the product and what are charging the client. So that second layer of fee is a, a very simple example of how the firm is getting paid twice. What's the alternative, or what is an alternative? Well, the alternative is the client should have complete transparency into the cost. And at, at Hightower, for example, uh, a client would know what the fees are of their products, and they would have transparency into how much they were paying their financial advisor. So pure transparency in a very simple fashion uh, is one way to illuminate if a conflict exists or not. And if, as many people have complained over the years, you have a hard time understanding from your statement exactly how much you're paying the firm, then that confusion is probably covering up conflicts of interest. Tell us about banks as uh, money managers and the wealth divisions of banks. So a number of years ago, there was a very famous argument that said uh, it, it would be beneficial for the client if you brought together different types of financial activities. You should bring an insurance company with a, a bank lending company, with an asset management company, trading companies. And if you brought all this together under one roof, presumably you would get quote-unquote synergies, and that would be better for the client. Well, the synergy part was right. But what didn't happen is that the benefit didn't go to the client, the benefit went to the firm. And so many of the people that thought that that would benefit the client have now changed their story and recognized it's better to have those pieces separated. So if you go to a bank, you know the product you're getting from the bank and you know the fees that you're paying. If you go to an asset manager whose job it is to pick stocks or pick bonds, you know how much you're paying for that service. And if you go to a fiduciary financial advisor, in the same way, if you went to see a doctor or a lawyer, you would know that that professional owed you a legal duty to put your interest first and that there was no behind-the-curtain multiple layers of fees or conflict of interest that would impair the service provider providing services that were in your interest, not the firm's. I want to turn your attention now to something that you've brought under the roof, and this is an acquisition that you made in Texas. Tell yes. us about what Hightower is doing there. Well, so the the, the folks down in, in Houston, Texas, uh, the, the 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 name of the company is Salient, and the 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 professionals there are, are truly outstanding. Um, Hightower has a collection across the entire uh, country of some of the finest financial advisors from many, many different firms. And we take a lot of pride in discharging the fiduciary duty and putting our clients' interest first. And the folks that, that joined us out of Texas have been building that level of fiduciary energy and passion for, for many, many years. They were already fiduciaries when we met them, and they were thrilled 
to find our infrastructure and technology and, and, and culture to partner up with us. What came along with that is that they were running a trust company as well. So Hightower not only picked up a whole slew of very fine professionals and a presence in a great state of Texas, we also picked up a new capability that we can now extend across the country to our other clients. All right, so in maybe 30, 35 seconds, given that you've put this together, yes. do you have in your mind what is what you consider to be a fair fee structure for the typical retail investor? Sure, so fair fee schedule is best defined by the relationship between the advisor and the client. So one of the areas that we take a lot of pride in at Hightower is we respect the sophistication of our financial advisors. We respect them in their choices on products. We respect them in their choices on how to build portfolios. And we respect them on how they think they should generate a fee from their client. So there's a tremendous amount of flexibility for our financial advisors to look at the human beings they service and come up with fair fees. Thanks very much for being with Thanks, us. Thanks, Tim. Elliot Weisbluth, he is the founder and the chief executive of Hightower Advisors. They're based in Chicago, helping to manage about $50 billion of customer assets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.